My mother made me who I am today. I watch her make all these incredible clothes, all these incredible women come in. People always talk about sort of diversity and inclusivity, but I grew up with cousins and aunts and my mother's friends, all different shapes and sizes. My idea of beauty came from my mother. It wasn't a specific Eurocentric style, but it was anybody could be beautiful. Edward Enenville is a trailblazer in the world of fashion. He began in the industry aged just 18 as the youngest ever fashion director of ID magazine. Born in Ghana, his family fled the political instability of the early 1980s and settled in London, where Enenville found a milieu who championed and inspired him as a model, writer and stylist. Today, he is editor-in-chief of British Vogue, the only black person to ever serve in this role in the magazine's history. His new book, A Visible Man, traces his remarkable journey that's taken him from Ghana to one of the most powerful positions in fashion. I'm Sophie Grove, and I spoke to Edward Enenfield in London for the big interview. Edward Enenfield, it's wonderful to speak to you today for the big interview. And an incredible memoir we've all been devouring over the Thank weekend. You. Tell me why you decided to write this memoir, yeah. A Visible Man, now. I mean, there is something to be said for turning 50. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm always sort of trying to look forward, always about forward motion. But in my 50th year, I mean, I got married. We've been together for 20 years. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and I started looking back at my life. And then I also saw that a lot of young people sort of see the end result. They see people like, like me, like you, and they don't see the journey. So I just felt that it was important to let them know that the journey was as much about my failures as well as my successes, that, you know, you can always fall but pick yourself up. So really it was for a new generation, but also the fact that I was 50 and I was like owning my life, so to say. In the prologue, you describe a moment you're walking your dog in the park with a friend. Yes. Uh, the pandemic yes. has hit us, but also the horrific death of George Floyd yes. has started to become apparent and is you know, just on everyone's um, social media and yeah. around the world. These two events almost collided. Yes. And in a way that also prompted your oh my decision God, yes. to write this memoir. Yes. I mean, I remember we'd been in lockdown for a while and George Floyd was murdered. And what really struck me was how all these young people from all across the globe sort of came out to protest. Black lives matter! Black lives matter! The police in the UK have killed people and are held unaccountable for. Look at the T-shirt. These are the names of people they've killed. How dare the chief of police across the country issue a statement saying they're in solidarity with George Floyd. They are disgraceful. They have and I just thought, my God, this is a generation, a really hopeful generation. And in that moment, I thought I could really tell a story, my story, just to see to show people the power of possibility. So that was also another reason, and timing. And timing. <laughs> I want to go back to the very beginning of this beautiful memoir. You were born in Ghana, yes. in Takaredi, um, on the coast, and um, you, you, your father, Major Crosby um, Enifil, was um, you know, a military man who, who moved about quite a bit, but yes. the family was there living in a military enclosure. Tell me about that period, your childhood, was this a happy time? I mean, all I remember was sort of, all oh, these beautiful bungalows and 
just running from house to house in, in Takoradi and being with my siblings and, you know, when you live on a military base, it's very sort of very family oriented, so from house to house. Then we moved from Takoradi to Accra, which is the capital, to another military base called Burma Camp. And as I talk about in my book, um, Burma Camp was opposite the sea. And there was sort of a little hill with these sticks on. And, and we realized that, you know, that's where they sort of executed people. But when you're a child, you normalize everything. So it'd be like on Sundays, we're like, oh my God, it's firing squad day. But essentially people would be dragged up and shot. It was a very surreal life, growing up in Ghana, but on a military base, you know, and then eventually we moved to the town of Tema and things were a little more normal. I mean, it's so interesting the way you, you describe this kind of almost beautiful lawns, very sort of elegant, clipped, yes, yes. sort of almost yes. sterile place. And then the contrast of this contrast. horrific yes. thing that you became habituated to. Yeah. Yes. Um, and very, very unusual for a child. Um, do you think that that haunts you at all today, or did you? Is it just that oblique child memory that you just ha- you just have for just hovering there? I mean, for me, it's it's an oblique child memory. But growing up, I just realised, my God, how horrific it was. I mean, I remember I went back to Ghana before lockdown, and I took a drive to see where we grew up, and I looked across the hill where people were executed and. It was a tiny little hill, but when you're a child, things are so magnified, you know. So it's an oblique memory, yes, in my childhood, but it stayed with me. It really. And the book is dedicated to Grace, yes, my mother, my mother, um, who was a very unusual military spouse in a way. She <laughs> had a very successful um, yes. fashion business. Mm-hmm. Forty seamstresses underneath her. Um, you know, she sounds like a woman with a lot of character, a lot of style. Mm. Um, and you assisted her as, mm. a, as a young boy, um, even attending fittings in the presidential palace. Yes. Uh, tell me about her and tell me about those formative memories. I mean, I always say my mother made me who I am today. You know, from very young age, I'd watch her sewing. You know, I'd watch her make all these incredible clothes, all these incredible women come in. People always talk about sort of diversity and inclusivity, but I grew up with cousins and aunts and my mother's friends, all different shapes and sizes. My idea of beauty came from my mother. It wasn't a specific Eurocentric style, but it was anybody could be beautiful. And she really showed me, you know, the most incredible things you could do with fashion, how women would feel so beautiful in just one dress, the right dress. Um, She also showed me if women didn't feel comfortable, what that was also like. She would take me everywhere. I was really her little, I was probably her favorite. (laughs) (laughs) But I learned about beauty from my mother, definitely. I mean, you know, I can tell from one little glance if you're happy, if a woman's happy, but those things came from my mother. You know, just being very attentive. And that's really helped me. There's also another great woman in, early on in the book, your aunt, who ran Dolly Dots, the, yes. the hair salon. Mm-hmm. And you describe sneaking off to read all the magazines in Dolly Dots, but also just sort of be in this lovely female emporium of, of wonderful hair styling and, and this great aunt, mm-hmm. the figure in your life. Tell me about those moments. I mean, I remember 
sort of always, we lived in Tema, so sort of walking to Dolly Dots and just seeing these incredible magazines like Ebony and Jet and Time. It was as if a portal opened to a world of beauty. And I mean, magazines did that for me. And I, I would literally go through the magazines back and forth until they started to fall apart. But I realized that there was a world out there. I didn't know what that world was, but I knew that women like Diana Ross, Donna Summer, Iman, these were incredible women, strong women. And I realized even to this day, I love strong women. But looking through those magazines felt like another world had opened up in my mind. And even though you had these champions of your creativity, uh, the contrasting figure in the book feels like your father, mm. who was obviously a military man, but yes. was much more stern, disciplinarian even, and not such a, um, not such an encouraging figure for you. I mean, you know, my mother was creative and she really encouraged my creativity. And my dad was, I mean, he was a product of his time. He was a military man. You know, he was a major in the army. Discipline was so important. So, you know, he tried to sort of instill that in his kids. But I was sort of very sensitive, very shy. And I think I took it, you know, it was very hard on me having to hide my sketches. Or now that I look back, I, he was probably, he probably knew I was gay. <laughs> you know, because you always know with your children. So, you know, he always terrified me. And I had my mother to protect me anyway. But um, looking back, yes, he must have known that I was the sensitive one, so to say. And I love this description of the family, all the different roles, your, your brother Kenneth, mm -hmm. you know, these brilliant, almost role models for you, but yeah. they're also protectors yeah. from your father or just a distraction. Mm -hmm. And you seem like a quiet, contemplative, very shy. creative boy, yeah. yeah. Very shy. I mean, my brothers loved me. I mean, they protected me. I followed Kenneth to boarding school, and then, you know, there was Luther and Crosby, and they were bad. They were out playing football, and they would see my dad's car, and they will run in and wash their feet, and I just watched them in amazement, and I really worshipped my, my brothers. Even to this day, you know, they're so encouraging and so fantastic but they knew that they had to protect me because I was so shy you know but I managed to grow out of that well tell me about the move to London because you talk about the executions and the change of power that happened after Nkrumah mm -hmm. came to power in, in Ghana lots of coups and eventually the family and, and their allegiances came you know really under threat mm -hmm. and your dad left for London and the family followed him shortly after. Tell me about leaving Ghana. I mean, you know, there we were running around the streets of um, Tema, and then we hear there's a coup, you know, Rawlings coming to power. An uncle of ours was executed, and my dad was gone from one day to the next. And we didn't really know how serious it was until we came home one day and... My mother was like, all right, you're all going to London. And we thought it was an adventure. But it was so crazy when we landed in London. I mean, it was, it was like Disneyland in a way. You know, I'd never seen buildings like this before. I never, the weather was so cold. But, you know, I come, I come from, a, you know, we came from a country that was so hot all year round. And the most incredible thing was that everybody was white. We just come from a country where the majority of people were black. So for us, that was also something. But it was like, you know, 
Disney ride. I mean, we all crammed into two bedrooms, but it didn't matter because in Ghana, we all, you know, shared rooms anyway. And you talk about going to Tesco, loading <laughs> up on lilt, but also that feeling a bit like the Willy Wonka chocolate factory, this sense of wonder. That, this is exactly what I say to my friend. It was like Willy Wonka, just I'd never seen a supermarket before. And all those biscuits and lilt, which we were so obsessed with, and tango, and it was just like, you wanted everything, fill up the cars. We weren't rich, so you know you couldn't afford much, but it was so incredible. Just, I remember the idea of being in the UK at that time was like magic, it was magical on one hand. Because you write with such ambivalence about that period. I mean, you landed in London, there was a cultural shock, but then also the political yeah. context, I mean, you were quite young, was really quite, you know, profound at that moment there were the Brixton riots the brewing. Brixton riots yeah Thatcher was in power mm. were you aware of any of these events I mean I knew that you know when Sherry Gross was killed in Brixton and the riot happened I knew my dad was so scared every time we went to school we had to come straight back home and he'll be screaming at the TV every time Margaret Thatcher was on and we had a sense that we weren't so welcome in England as black people it was the first time I sort of thought oh we're, we're different the Brixton riot and I remember I would see the skies when you know things were being cars were being burnt but there was a, such a fear you know within my family that I knew that you know we were in a different time you moved to Ladbroke Grove and you write about this happy moment of watching, actually, the council house being built mm -hmm. um, on that land and then moving as a family. I think you were nine people in the end in this one house. But tell us about that area and Ladbroke Grove, the energy of the moment and how that stayed with you, that mm -hmm. influence on you. I mean, Ladbroke Grove in the mid to late 80s was incredible. I mean... Rastafarians next to aristocrats, black, white, brown. I mean, a whole kaleidoscope of people and everybody was welcome. And I remember the Goulburn Road, the Moroccan restaurants. And it was so amazing to grow up in such a diverse neighborhood. That became my reality. And I remember even thinking back then, oh my God, this is the world I wanted to live in, where everybody felt beautiful. So Labra Grove for me was incredible. And I, and I had a budding sense of style and everything was, you know, every style was great. We had Portobello Market. So you'd go pick your clothes and customize them. It was a really incredible moment to grow up. And you said in your description of Labra Grove, if you had an identity, you expressed it on the street, you expressed it with clothes. Yes. And how did you express yours? Give us an insight into Edward of you know, the late 80s. My brother and I were obsessed with bras, so it was all about the ripped jeans. So you rip the jeans, you wore cowboy boots, slogan t-shirts, and we thought we looked amazing. I mean, sort of 1950s pompadours, and you know, Labra Grove was all about self-expression. Two black kids from Africa who'd landed in this incredible area. It was all about trying to outdo each other with style. One day you were on the tube and you were approached by Simon Foxton mm -hmm. of ID, who scouted you for a shoot. Tell us about that moment and how that shaped your career. I mean, I remember I was 16 and I was at Kingsway College 
And before that, you know, I always had a big afro, huge glasses. And I remember asking my mom to get me sort of this new contraption that was out for the eyes, because I've never had great eyes. And it was contact lenses, the hard ones. So I remember throwing my glasses away and um, I was on the Hammersmith and City line heading to college and this man was staring at me and I just kept thinking, what does he want? And then the Baker Street, he gave me his card and it was Simon Foxton, one of the best fashion stylists of our generation, really. He worked for ID Magazine in Arena. And I remember going home and showing his card to my mother and my mother wasn't so convinced. And you know, a 16-year-old and really pestering her and pestering her so she eventually called Simon and before I knew it I was working with Nick Knight on a photo shoot and Simon and that was the beginning of sort of my modeling career while I was also at college. Really my introduction into the fashion industry. And you were studying literature at the time but ostensibly your goal was to become a lawyer which was very much expected of you your father's ambition for you but you really had other ideas after this amazing introduction (laughs) to fashion you started really writing for id but also working as a stylist and really cutting your teeth in that world tell us about that transition i mean i remember the meeting simon and thinking this is the world i want to be in my god the world of fashion in the world of beauty. And I just knew that I wasn't gonna be a doctor or a lawyer. It was so amazing being on shoots. I mean, I knew I wasn't a great model, but I loved what was going on behind the scenes. I loved imagery. And I remember every time I'd go to college, I'd literally be like, what am I doing here? But this carried on. And then I sort of started at Goldsmiths University and I really didn't want to be that. I wanted to be in fashion. Yeah, there was no going back. It was that Pandora's box had been opened. Tell me about the reaction of your father, because he was a very strict man and you'd gone against his wishes and he really reacted actually quite badly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, my father always believed in sort of academia and, you know, studying to be a doctor or a lawyer. And I remember pretending to go to university when I was literally hanging out with sort of the fashion gang and sort of just loving every minute. And I remember one day thinking, I can't just keep pretending I'm going to university when I'm actually working essentially, you know, doing bits and pieces of ID, running around for Simon, doing bits of modeling and casting. So I remember coming home and just saying, dad, I haven't been going to university and I have no interest in it. And he reacted so badly. He threw my things outside the window. And I remember sort of picking them up really sort of quite shaken and then you know just going to the only home I knew which was ID magazine and on that same day when I told Beth Summers the incredible fashion director what had happened she said well I've got news for you I'm leaving and you're taking over and at that time I was 18 years old wow it's a a, a very important day in your life but very important day (laughs) in your book you write a lot about the racism that you mm-hmm. faced in the industry. Despite these champions like Simon and Beth, you say that your life has been contoured by suspicion, hostility, and double standards in ways both egregious and subtle. And it's interesting to hear you're inherently optimistic, yeah. but there have been moments that 
may have just put most people off doing what mm. you've done. And I wondered, were there moments where you felt like giving up and, and, and turning your back on, on the fashion world? Oh my God, there were so many hard moments. That's why, going back to what I said about the book, I wrote it to show my failures and not just the successes. There were times I really wanted to give up. And also don't forget, I was, I didn't have a note. The only person I had really a note that was Andre Tally. There was nobody like me, you know? That's why for me right now, it's so important to show kids of all different races that it is possible. There were times where I felt very lonely, very alone, but I just kept going. I knew this was the calling. I knew this was my destiny. And no matter how many knockbacks I had, I always got back up and I wasn't going back home. That was a real, really what kept me going. I wasn't going back home, but I also knew that I had to sort of keep moving. A lot of people, when you're in a position where you're seen as the token one, a lot of people are fine to be that. But for me, it was important to bring people up with me. So I had friends like Pat McGrath and Naomi Campbell, and there weren't that many of us, but we formed sort of a family. And tell me about some of your breaks. I mean, you talk about your work, for instance, with Calvin Klein. And, you know, these two years of consulting and working with some of the greatest stylists and models we now consider to be supermodels. Yes, Back then, yeah. they were really up and coming, people yeah. like Naomi. Tell me what you learned during those years. This was mid to late 90s. I learned that you could say so much about fashion through images. I learned that fashion had the power to, you know, to really affect change. And then watching my little friend, like Kate Moss, I met when, I met at the casting and I was 16 and she was 14, and just watch her grow into this incredible supermodel. And then I'm meeting Naomi sort of in the early 90s, you know, she started to do well. We were the same generation. We saw things in the same way. You know, we were all navigating sort of really grown up spaces. And the experience at Calvin Klein really taught me that, you know, what we were doing in London at the time, which they called grunge, had really caught the world's eye. And we just kept going, you know, every opportunity we got, we just brought each other along. Kate would bring me on jobs. Naomi would put me up for jobs and vice versa. So we really looked out for each other. And you talk about working with Stephen Meisel for Vogue Italia, yeah. this matriculation of, of style. I mean, he was, such a demanding, formative person for you. But after working with him for several years, you got a call from Grace Coddington and Anna Wintour, and you were offered a job at Vogue in the US. Yes. So tell me about that experience, working yeah. for American Vogue, but also that moment when you realised, in fact, the diversity there was very lacking mm. and, and that, you know, it would be a struggle at points. I mean, I remember getting a call from Grace to come and work at American Vogue and going up to meet sort of Grace and Anna. And, you know, they were so, they were so kind to me. And I got the job there. And I, re I realized at the time there weren't that many sort of models of color in the magazine. But, you know, for my stories, I would just ask for what I want. And I pushed for, you know, black models and changed the narratives. And they were very, very sort of open to my suggestions. So those American Vogue years, I mean, I also learned a lot about the business because I'd come from sort of Italian Vogue working with Steve and where we'd create 30 page 
stories, you know, sometimes just all portraits. But at Vogue, I learned the power of fashion, also the industry, the fashion industry, being a champion for an industry, you know, for designers, for young designers. And um, it was tough at times because you had to walk the fine line, I always say, between art and commerce. You know, I'd had such an artistic run up until then. In the past, you've said that fashion is a mirror. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, fashion's a mirror, and just, you know, it mirrors society, right? When, when we used to do this story talking about plastic surgeries, it was at a moment where plastic surgery had moved from sort of women on the Upper East Side to, to the population. Or when we talked about, you know, um, issues around, you know, mental illness, you know, we'll depict all these visually. And even in lockdown, you know, I thought, my God, what, do, what can we do to reflect the times we were in? And when they said 60-year-olds had to stay at home, we put Judy Dench on the cover, who was 85 years old. You know, we put the activists on the cover when George Floyd was murdered. And then I remember I'd look outside my window and see these essential workers out every day sort of literally putting their lives on the line and I put three of them on the cover. So fashion really, for me, works when it reflects our times or the times we're in. You, your incredible professional achievements have come at some personal cost and you talk about the amount of stress, the amount of just the work ethic mm -hmm. that you have had has been quite punishing for your health. Um, but you also, at one point, your mother was very ill and you really hit yeah. rock bottom and you were drinking too much. You decided to sign up to AA. Mm. You talk about that as a balm and you attended for many, many years. Mm. Tell me about that and tell me about that moment when you really realized that you needed to change the way you worked, but the way you were treating your body. I mean, I remember, you know, just working so much and always in forward motion. And I know that, you know, work can be demonized, you know, but I also knew that I had a lot to say and I could really only do it through my work. And I was so young, you know, we were out partying and then, you know, come and go straight to work. And I remember thinking, how long can I carry this on? You know, how long can I keep sort of going at this pace at the cost of my mental health? And I remember deciding on my when I was 30 to just stop, to stop drinking, you know, to sort of find a different way of living that wasn't just out at night and going straight to work. Because for me, even though I went through so much sort of personally, I never let work falter. It was almost as if, so long as I could work, everything else was okay. But I realized, you know, by getting sober, that I had to look after myself. I had to treat myself better. And that was a 14-year journey, really. And I'm so glad I hit rock bottom, essentially. You know? I mean, there was a critical moment you write about in the book when you launched the Seven Deadly Sins of Edward Enifil campaign mm. with Naomi and Kate Moss, and suddenly you were wheeled into surgery. Um, so those two, you know, the sense that work and your, your health, which you've been battling with mm -hmm. since you were a child because you had this sickle cell trait, yes. um, which, which you, you talk about in the book too. Mm. Um, so you were in and out of hospital as a child. Mm. You know, in a sense, there was a moment when you realised that health uh, had to come first. Yeah, you know, I was young. You know, when you're young, you, you think you can, you can overcome everything. 
you know, yes, I had sickle cell trait and thalassemia and I should have been looking after myself better, but I was in my 20s. I thought I was, you know, invincible. But then you realize, no, you're not. And when I was wheeled into surgery, I mean, it was, this was many years later, you know, I was working so hard, getting on planes, all the things, stressing, all the things you're not supposed to do. But sort of having multiple sort of retinal detachments and spending days on end in, with my head facing down in dark rooms, I got to, so you really get to think. And I realized, my God, I really have to change my life. Tell me about 2016 when you received the most excellent order of the British Empire for your services to diversity in fashion. I noticed your father attended that. Was that really a moment of reconciliation with him? I mean, uh, receiving the OB was a great moment, you know. My dad, my father was so happy because here's a man who had to flee his country six kids who, you know, we grew up with no money and there I was being awarded the OB. For me, it was more for him than me. And um, also my mother had passed and just watching how delicate he had been with her for the 15 years when she had a stroke, we started to sort of develop a relationship again. And it was really great to see him that night and how proud he was. And now, you know, we're in a better place than we were when I was growing up. You say this book is written for dreamers. Um, what's your message to young people reading this memoir? My message to young people is like, do not be afraid, be fearless, you know, believe in yourself. When they tell you you can't do it, just push through because if I can do it from with my background and what I've been through, most people can. So that's my advice. Edward Enifield, thank you so much for joining me on the oh, interview. Oh, thank you so much for having me. That was Editor-in-Chief of British Vogue, Edward Enifield. His book, A Visible Man, is available now. Thanks to our producer, Emma Searle, and editor, Steph Chungu. From me, Sophie Grove, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.